Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 90. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a great guest, Alakazam, the human knot, also known as Al Miller, a very successful juggler and street performer all the way from Australia, currently living in Boston. Before we get to Al, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about the IJA by going to juggle.org. I'm also a sponsor, and you can buy my new book, Alex the Great, at Amazon.com, or my toy, The Ring Dama, at Flowtoys.com. All right, no more chitter-chatter, no more brouhaha. Let's sit back, drop everything, and listen to Al Miller. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 90. My special guest, Mr. Al Miller. Hello, Al. G'day, mate. How's it going? Good day. <laughs> hey, so you're in Boston now, but you grew up in Australia. That's right. So let's start about talking about Australia. What was the circus scene like when you grew up, and what was your first experience discovering juggling and the circus arts? Well, I mean, my first experience was uh, my cousin had learned how to juggle from a book uh, called The Complete Juggler by uh, Dave Finnegan. And he called me up one day. He said, hey, Al, I learned how to juggle. Next time we hang out, I'll show you how to do it. And he was from uh, like Western New South Wales. And there was a college out there that had a theater and media program and that a lot of street theater companies kind of came out of that program. So he lived near there. And so he saw when they had local events or they had like there's a big car race that happens in that town those performers would be able to go out on the streets and do their thing and he saw them when he was young doing their thing out on the streets you know, the town's called Bathurst by the way and that's why he he got interested in it and then he got me interested in it I was a few years younger he's I think four or five years older than me and that got me interested in juggling and performing and and uh, that's kind of where it started so you always saw it as a way to make money was that was what interested you initially that it was a money-making uh, type of thing to do? No, no, definitely not. I mean, I was only 15, I think, at the time when I started juggling. And I was into athletics. I was into track and field. And I was really good at it, too, until I started juggling. And then all my practice went from track and field into juggling. And I, I stopped doing track and field. I was doing really well at it, too. I was like a state a national champion. And what was uh, the scene around you? Did you see a lot of jugglers on the streets? Were there jugglers on TV? What did you see growing yeah. up in Australia? No, I didn't really see. I think I saw a street performer when I was when I was very young, like in my early teens, and it didn't really click. I didn't really remember that I had seen him until I started street performing. Like even I started juggling and this and that. And when I when I first started street performing, I recall I was like, wow, you know what? There's that guy, and I, I saw that guy when I was really young. Maybe it planted a seed. But I, I, I really forgot about it until I started performing. And what was your original practice like? Did you sort of do it all day long? Did it come easy to you? What were you like as a beginning performer and juggler? Well, yeah, as a juggler, like I learned really fast. Like the first day, uh, my cousin showed me how to do it. Like 30, 40 minutes and I had three balls going for at least five or six or maybe eight throws. And, and then like when he left, I just kept going. Like when he went home, I just kept practicing, kept practicing. And I just had little rice-filled balloons, you know, those little dumb things that you make for yourself. Mm -hmm. And then I just kept going. And then uh, each time he came over, he would show me uh, like a different trick that he learned in the Complete Juggler book. And then eventually he lent me that book and I started learning the, the tricks on my own. He had gotten a set of um, Henry's 
clubs. And so I asked my mum and dad if for my birthday, maybe I could get a set of Henry's clubs, you know. Mm-hmm. So then we'd, we'd have six and, uh, and we were able to start learning how to juggle clubs and pass because we had six. And what about the, the role of physical fitness in your training? Do you feel that you learned earlier because you were a bit of a sportsman to start with? Do you think that helped? I think it definitely helped because once you know how to train to do something, you know how to train to do anything, right? Mm-hmm. So like growing up being a track and field athlete uh, really helped me in the beginning, not only learning how to juggle, but learning how to perform. And l- literally like le- anything I learn these days, uh, I use those same tactics that I learned when I was a kid. So how to handle the pressure of competition is also the same as handling the pressure of doing shows, you think? I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, You have to have a relaxed mindset before you start a race, before you start a show. Uh, this one thing that always carried over from my track and field days was before a race, I would go to the bathroom and I would sit in there and I would just close my eyes and block my ears and um, just tune out the world. You know, just kind of, uh, I guess I was... I was meditating without even knowing what meditating was. And would you visualize the results you wanted to achieve? Were you a believer in positive visualization, yeah. stuff like that? Absolutely. Yeah, I would run through the whole race in my mind and I would see it happening before it happened. I'd visualize it. And then when the moment became live, I would just do what I saw in the visualization. And that carried over into performing before, I'm not every show, but before a lot of shows, I, I find somewhere where I can uh, be alone and with my thoughts and I just kind of visualize what's going to happen and then I make it happen. Now, were you in high school and did they, they call it high school in Australia? Is that uh, the yeah, same as right. high school? Now, what did you think about you were going to do for a living? Did you have a, a goal for a profession when you were growing up? Yeah. I mean, I was really good at, at art and drawing. And so I wanted to be an architect and uh, I even went and took a, a class uh, in drafting and a computer drafting and a, and a CAD system when I was in high school and, uh, and that was going to be it. That was going to be my thing. And then that's before I learned how to juggle. <laughs> so juggling pretty much, uh, put a stop to everything. And after you started learning to juggle, how long was it before you started to perform and make some money at it? Probably three years. Yeah. I think I learned when I was late, I was almost 15 when I think I started juggling and 17 when I started, uh, street performing. So did you ever have any real jobs before you became a performer? Anything, uh, cook or markets or anything like that? My first job when I was in high school was washing dishes at Pizza Hut. And then uh, I was already juggling at that point. And when I left high school, uh, I really liked making my own T-shirts. So I got into like just making T-shirts at home, T-shirt printing. And my, my parents were like, well, maybe you should uh, look for a job as a screen printer. So I, I did that. I went and looked for a job as a screen printer. And I found one and I was uh, granted an apprenticeship and I started going to school one day a week to learn like community college to learn like all the ins and outs of screen printing. And while I was doing that job, I was only there for maybe six months and the circus came to town, came to where I lived. And one day on my way home from work, I stopped by. They weren't performing that day. They mm-hmm. was like, they were setting up or whatever. And I went in there and, and asked, hey, what do I what do I have to do to get a job here? I'm a juggler. And they said, uh, well, we already have a juggler, but we do need someone to help us out around the circus. Mm-hmm. Maybe you come and start off doing that and uh, eventually lead to you being in the show. And that was it for me. I was like, that was, you know, I'd been working as a screen printer and not, 
not really enjoying it. I thought it was something I liked, but when I actually went to a job and started doing it, I wasn't making t-shirts. I was printing little stickers and little little um, name tags, and, and it was just no, it wasn't really my passion at all. So when the circus came to town and, and they offered $10 more a week than the screen printing job, I told my fa- my mum and dad, I said, look, the, this new job is uh, $10 more a week. So <laughs> I'm going to go with the circus. And was it a traveling circus? Did you then start uh, touring with them? Yeah, it was mainly just in Sydney. And just the, like Sydney's a big place, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was just the suburbs of Sydney that that circus was touring in at that time uh, in, in, in New South Wales. So when they came to my town and then the lady said, OK, well, in two weeks, we're going to be in this town. Why don't you come on that Monday, whatever date that was, and you can start work that day. And do you remember who the juggler was? Uh, were they, did they impress you? Yeah, he was a famous juggler. His name was Lloyd Nairn. And he was, he's been juggling in circuses in Australia since the 1950s. What kind of act did he do? Uh, he did like high numbers. Mm-hmm. He did rings, a lot of balls. And he also had um, this act with like balancing golf clubs on, on his chin and, and, and his head. And, uh, and then the golf balls on top of the clubs. And then one, the ball would go from the top of one club to another club. And then another club was on top and it would spin around on the other club. And it was, he was really good. At first glance, I was like, that old guy is your juggler? Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be in the show in no time because I'm a good juggler. Uh, but then when I saw his act, I was like, that dude is way better than me. <laughs> now, what kind of juggling were you doing? What, were your, what was your skill level like at that time? I mean, I was, I was doing a lot of ball juggling, uh, three, four, five balls, six balls, and clubs. I really put a lot of effort into club juggling. Only three clubs, though. I didn't go higher. I didn't even practice four or five because I saw a juggler when I was young who just did three clubs and it, I was so impressed by how fast he juggled and the amount of tricks that he did with just three clubs. So I, I didn't get into, into numbers with clubs. I started really working on like fast doubles and fast triples and flourishes and behind the backs and just all kinds of three club tricks. That was it for me, really. It was the, the speed juggling. So you start with the circus. How long before you start doing an act yourself? I mean, while I was in the circus, actually my cousin who taught me how to juggle, called me up one day. He's like, hey, Al, do you think I could get a job in the circus? I was like, dude, it's so easy to get a job at the circus. <laughs> Just come over here and ask them. And basically, like, he, he came and did that, and, we, and he, he was hired. And all we did was help build the tent, help build the chairs, help with the, the concessions outside, take kids on pony rides, <laughs> take down the lion's cage and, and put up the flying trapeze. You know what I mean? We were, we sure. were ring helpers. And then during the week when there was no shows, we'd do maintenance on, hey, paint that truck or build this, build that. Just different things uh, around, the, around the lot. And what did you think about the circus lifestyle? Were you immediately attracted to it? Uh, not really. <laughs> no, there's the, the, there was a traditional circus, lions, tigers and monkeys and, and rednecks. Like it was right. the, the family, I don't know, like traditional circus families in Australia are really like bogan rednecks. <laughs> So, and that was not... What's a, what's a bogan? A bogan? I, I think a bogan is Australian word for a redneck. Okay. Yeah. Because we would just say rednecks. We don't, we don't use the word bogan. Right. No. <laughs> I no, like no. it. Bogan. Yeah, it's, it is a good one. It's basically an Australian hillbilly. Mm-hmm. That was interesting to me because I wasn't like, I was a skinny kid. I wasn't like tough in any way. And these guys were like, they were all into drinking and fighting and cars and, and whatever and and it was tough for me as a young guy just to be thrown into that. So I was lucky that 
after a while, I had my cousin there. At least I had like someone on my side. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really, uh, you know, kind of like a hazy kind of environment. A lot of uh, ball breaking and winding each other up. Yeah, just all that kind of male culture that, you know, isn't really, I mean, it's like a kind of a frat house culture, you know? Yeah, that's what the Bogan Rednecks are famous for in Australia. Yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. And how long, did you, how long did you stay with the circuits? Uh, I was I was probably only six months. And what, what happened was we, my cousin Mitch and I started, when we didn't have to work, we would go, we would catch the train into Sydney and we would go and uh, start trying to do street shows. And we were making a little bit of money doing that. And eventually <laughs> I was like, you know what? I've had enough of the circus. Let's just go do this. Well, if we can do this like every day, we'll make more money than we will being working for someone else. <laughs> and what year was that? What year did you start working the streets in Australia? Uh, 1996. And what was the pitch? Was there a bunch of pitches or a particular place you started out at? Yeah, the first spot was um, Circular Key. And it's like the probably the number one spot in Sydney at the time. It had a lot of other street performers. So, yeah, at the time, like a lot of the, the Covent Garden performers would go there uh, for their when it was winter in London and uh, some Canadians and some Americans would come down in the winter so you know Australian summer and they so we got to see a lot of international like high level street performers right when we first began which was really helpful who did you see and who, who stuck out as being uh, at the top of the game that time who was your inspirations uh, well, some of the locals, really. I mean, there was a guy, there's a guy called J.P. McKendry. He really took me under his wing when I first started, uh, when we first started, and he helped us out a lot. There was another guy called A.J. from London, A.J. James, who's an acrobat who came over and would perform in Sydney. There was Richie Rich. He was probably the biggest act in town. Uh, he did a really tall unicycle act, juggling. Was he uh, Lucky Diamond Rich? Is that the same character? It is, yeah. He, he was Richie Rich. He became Lucky Diamond Rich. He changed his name, uh, I forget when, but in the late 90s. Yeah, Lucky Diamond Rich, and he was one of my major influences uh, when I went solo, who really helped me out and helped me grow my show exponentially. Now, when did you get your first tattoo? It seems like uh, a lot of street performers are heavily tattooed. <laughs> when did you start, uh, start getting your first body art? Uh, I think 1998. I was in New Zealand, and I got, uh, I got a, a tattoo on my shoulder while I was in New Zealand. And then I liked the way it looked. I looked at my other shoulder and I was like, well, I need one on my other shoulder now. And so I got basically the same tattoo on the other shoulder, but the opposite so it looked, uh, looked the same on both sides. I just kept doing that. I started getting the same thing on both sides. So most of my tattoos, almost all of my tattoos are symmetrical. But Lucky Diamond Rich became uh, the world's most tattooed man. Any desire yeah. to keep going down that route or at a certain point you said, no. that's enough tattoos? No, no, I, no. I, I still, I still don't think. Hey, that's enough tattoos. But there's no way I'm, I'm doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like, I like getting tattoos. I like the way they look. I like the way it feels. You know, a lot of my tattoos I've drawn myself. Uh, a lot of tattoos I've got from great artists. It's just kind of a collection of art. Yeah. I, I just, uh, it's part of my costume, really. It's part of my look as a street performer being tattooed. Now, do you think? Uh, well, we'll get into street performing in a bit. So I really want to go over uh, your specialty, which is street performing. Let's talk a little about your start again. So you started as a duo with your cousin. How long before you went out on your own? And what was your experience working with a duo? Well, it was fun, but we didn't really know the, the dynamics of a duo. Like you, I mean, you, you've been a duo for your whole career, right? So you know the dynamics. You have like the straight man and the funny man. We didn't know 
that that's how it worked, right? So we would just take turns talking <laughs> and uh, do tricks that uh, that two people do, you know, like passing or passing around a person or standing on the shoulders. We just learned kind of the hard way. Uh, that college that I mentioned earlier that had the theater media uh, program, my cousin Mitch got uh, accepted into that program. So he left, he went off to college and I was left uh, at the pitch going, all right, well, I guess I'll just wait for him to get back. And one of the performers who'd been there from London, another uh, very influential guy, his name was Melvin Plummer. He was a break dancer. He used to spin on his head as a grand finale. He was at the pitch one day and he said, well, tell me what you what you can do. Like, what are your skills, right? And I told him, I rattled off all these skills. Like, He goes, here's what you do. You start your show with this, then you do this, then you get a volunteer, and then you do this. And he, and he said, go out and, and do that. And I was like, oh, by myself? He's like, yeah, just, just go out and do it by yourself. <laughs> Right. And so I, I did it and it worked. Got a crowd. I made money and it was more money that I, than I was making when we were splitting our hat as a duo. That day I went out and did like maybe six more shows and I was like, that was it. That was it for me. Suddenly now I'm a solo performer. And what was your finale at that time? Did you have something that got up high in the air, like a giraffe unicycle or something like that? No, I just, I, I pulled out two people. I got them to fold their arms and face each other. Mm-hmm. And then I would climb up and stand on their folded arms and juggle fire at the end. And I, the last one, I'd throw the fire torch up in the air. I'd jump off the guys, land on the ground and catch the fire torch before I hit the ground. Nice, nice. It's always important to, uh, for performers to get up high, it seems like, as far as making the most tips. To so have something like that where you don't need to bring something with you. You could just rely on yeah. the volunteers. It's a nice way to get up high in the air without having to bring a freestanding ladder or a unison right. or something like that. Yeah, the plus, that, that is a plus, not having to bring something. But the minus is when you do have one of those things, like a ladder or an A-frame or, or a unicycle, it's, uh, it's something that you can point to and say, hey, I'm going to do that. Whereas when it's just people, you know, there's no, <laughs> you can't point to it and you use it to gather a crowd. Well, it's like when I think about street performing, I always think about it like a story where oh, the, yeah. the finale, if you have a, a big unicycle or something out there, they're waiting for the end. They're waiting for the, the story to complete itself because they see yes. something there that they figure you're going to use eventually and they're intrigued as so they want to stay. Yeah, my analogy of that is um, there's really only one trick in your show and you say, hey, I'm going to do this trick, but then you get interrupted. Oh, wait a minute. Before I do that, I have to <laughs> right. do this. They go, All right, folks, I'm going to do this trick now. Ah, oh, but, but before I do that, I have to do this. All right, I'm going right, to, I need a volunteer. All right, I'm going to do it. All right, I need to do this. It's just a, a long list of, oh, but wait, I have to do this first before you do the trick. Well, it keeps people there because what I found when I performed is that my show is sort of different chapters. Like each routine had an ending point where they might say, oh, that was good. I think we've seen enough. We can now walk away. Not right. trying to wait for something that they were hoping to see in the end. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't really work on the street. <laughs> no, no. So let's talk about your experience from the street. So you started out as a, a duo, then you went to the solo. When did you start moving around and decide to go out of Australia and try some other locations? Well, I mean, I had a car. I went to different cities in Australia first. I went to um, Melbourne. I went to Brisbane. I went to Perth. I went to Adelaide. I went to Hobart. Um, so I did a lot of traveling within Australia first. And when I was in Melbourne, I met a guy who was from Canada and I watched his show and he was really funny. And I said, hey, maybe one day I'll, uh, I'll come to Canada. And I think maybe three months later, I went <laughs> right. just because I met a guy who said, hey, I know t- he does shows in Vancouver. 
Right. So I was like, oh, wow, then I know there's a pitch in Vancouver. I can go there and do shows. So that was that was it. I bought a one-way ticket and went to Vancouver. What were the kind of money you were making in Australia? Like, what was a good hat back in the end uh, in those days? When I first started, I was doing everything in my power to break 100 bucks. You know, when I first was beginning. But then the first time I actually broke 100, I broke 200. So I went from like an average of $90 a show and then one show, I went over $200. So the first time I broke 100, I broke over 200. What do you think the difference was? Was it a, a more crowd or just a better show? It was one of those just right place, right time mm -hmm. kind of things. It was a perfect day with a lot of people. Everything went right in the show. And I don't know, maybe uh, I'm not really sure, but it was just one of those perfect moments. But it didn't continue. I mean, I went back down to my regular hats. But I would say once I started, once I got the hang of it, I started pulling in between like 150 and 250 most shows in Australia. In Australia, could you work during the week or was it just, just weekends? You could work during the week, but it was better on the weekends, like anywhere really. And how did you feel about going to Canada? So when you get to Vancouver, was it a big change? Was it a better pitch, a worse pitch? Uh, were the audiences different? What was the difference between Canada and Australia? It was much different. Uh, what I realized is that Australia is a really hard place to street perform um, because of A, the weather, it's hot, B, the population, there's not that many people there, and C, the people that are there are a little bit standoffish. And if you want to show them something, they think that you're trying to show off or they think that you think you're better than them or something. Right. So they're a little bit standoffish and they take a little bit more work to win them over. And the minute I started performing in Canada, I opened my mouth and people were there to watch, like just straight away. And then I started performing and people were laughing, they're clapping. And then the money was like double. So I was like, oh, wow, uh, Canada is much better than Australia for street performing. Now, what do you think about the accent? I always felt that Australians had an advantage because they have a very charming accent. And that yeah. Americans and the Canadians, they like to hear it. Do you think that uh, when you open your mouth and they hear the accent, they immediately are intrigued? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that has a big uh, part to play, uh, being a novelty, being from somewhere else. Whereas in the reverse direction, an American performing in Australia does have that to a degree, but we get that accent on TV every mm. day of the week, right? So it's not yeah. strange. Whereas here, you don't hear an Australian accent that often. So I think that had a lot to play uh, into it as well. Now, what do you think the main difference between an English accent and Australian accent is? Because I, I have trouble telling the two apart sometimes. Oh, okay. I, I think the English accent sounds a little bit more proper. It's like the English stopped off in Texas before they went to Australia. You know, that it, slowed, <laughs> it slowed down a bit. Right. The words started running together. Uh, I mean, my accent now isn't anything like it was when I was a teenager. Uh, it was much more of an Australian kind of suburban sound, whereas now I've I've lived here, I've lived all over the world, I've been traveling. And I think just from performing and trying to be understood as an entertainer, you have to speak clearly, right? So mm -hmm. my accent has changed. Yeah, I always say the number one tip I always give uh, to any performer, number one is understandability. Like if they can't understand what you're saying, oh, they're yeah. not going to find it funny and they're not going to have enough patience to stick around. So being understandable, whether you have an accent or not, to me, is always one of the one of the first keys. Absolutely, yeah. You need them to hear every word when I'm performing. If people like 200, 300 feet away can hear every word I'm saying, then they're gonna they're gonna come over. They're not just gonna hear a jumble of sounds that sounds like a person speaking through a microphone. 
podcasts, it's actually, they, they might actually hear a joke and go, wow, that was funny. And then come over and watch. Yeah. And if they can hear you, whether they have a clear view or not, they still could be entertained. Exactly. But if they can't hear you and they can't have trouble seeing you, they're just going to walk away. It's not yeah. going to work. Now, when did you start adding a contortion? Because if you look at your website and stuff, you don't really even bill yourself as a juggler per se. No. Would you call yourself a juggler or a contortionist? How would you describe your act? Well, I'd say 90% of my act is contortion and 10% of my act is juggling. So I do bill myself as a contortionist because, you know, when I looked around in, in Australia, when I was doing shows, everyone was a juggler and everyone was juggling. And I was taking inspiration from my peers and my show looked like everyone else's show. So I had to start looking for inspiration in other places. When I, I looked to my, in my athletic background, I was really flexible. I wasn't any good at acrobatics or anything, but I was flexible. So I went to the library and um, I borrowed books on circus. I borrowed circus books and I would just look through the books for pictures and yoga books. I would just look through the books for pictures on things that I think I could do and I would try and do them. And once I, once I figured out that I could do something, I'd put it in my show and see if people liked it or see if I could think of a funny thing to say while I was doing it. And do you think that people liked the contortion better than the juggling or it was the same, just depending on the trick? Why did you go mostly towards contortion and leave the juggling behind even after you got out of a situation where you were competing with other jugglers? I think it, um, it comes down to the curious nature of uh, the, the people who watch. They see something that they've seen before, they're not that curious. They see something they haven't seen before then they are curious. They're like, whoa, what, what's going on? And what's this guy doing? And so I think it really helped me stopping a crowd, gathering a crowd, gathering a larger crowd, is doing something different that was that was not normal. And then, you know, ending the show with something, uh, once I had them and once I had their attention, once I'd won them over with my charm, giving them something technical like juggling as a payoff. When did you start using the stage name Alakazam? It was very early. I think it was when I... When my cousin and I first started sharing the pitch as a, as a solo act, because he came back from his university course when he had a break and was I was doing solo shows, so he started doing solo shows as well. That's when he said to me, you know, your name's Al. Well, maybe you should just be Alakazam. So I just said, yeah, okay, that sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, there was no thought into sure. it really at all. And when I made my first promo video, I put Alakazam on it. I sent it off to Canada to some festivals. And uh, it got me booked. So, you know, and then it just kind of stuck. It became my, my reputation, landed with my name, and now it's just who I am. Well, I think it's important to have a good stage name, especially for the busker festivals. Because when you yeah. see they're, they're having the, the, the posters or the shirts, the names are always intriguing. The Daredevil uh, Chicken yeah. Club, the Kamikaze yeah, yeah. Fireflies, the Space Cowboy, Al Miller. You know, you, yeah, you exactly. want to have something that, that fits with the with the rest of the, of the gang. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it definitely helps uh, with your promotion uh, and, and marketing, for sure. So let's talk about the Busker Festivals, because that's certainly a very big venue that a lot of Americans don't know too much about. Yeah, it's not too big in the U.S. No, we had a couple. We had like Denver Busker Fest for a while. And of course, we have pitches like Pier 39 in San Francisco, Boston, New Orleans. But as far as the festivals, I think Canada is probably the, the premier place for busker festivals. Definitely in North America, for sure. I mean, they are coming in, into the U.S. like before, I mean, obviously before this year. The last couple of years, they started popping up in the U.S. because, I mean, they've been going for 30-plus years in Canada, and they've been going for longer than that in Europe. And uh, the U.S. is kind of catching on. 
you know, there was Denver, which I did a few times back in the early 2000s. Um, and then that went away and there was not really not anything for a while, but now they're starting to come back. Now there's, there's a really good one in Burlington, Vermont, uh, yeah. every, every August. Festival of Fools. Yeah. I've done that one. Yeah. Yeah. There's also Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, I think has Lawrence, a busker Lawrence, festival. Kansas. Yeah. yeah. There's one in, there's a new one in Denver called the Union Station Busker Fest. And there's little one, little ones that pop up all over the place. So it's, it is starting to happen. And I think that it's prime to like bloom in this country because it's, oh man, like they, they're such a successful event. You don't have, there's no tickets. There's, people can, they can come and shop in markets and, and eat food from food trucks and watch a show. It's, it's such a really cool community event and it, it doesn't cost that much to put on, you know? Let's talk a little bit about busker festivals, which ones you've done. Because yeah. uh, you had quite a reputation as uh, being a big act. You know, that uh, brings a big crowds and makes big money. What were some of the festivals you started at and uh, which are some of your favorites that you think are the best run and have the best possibility for making good money? Early in my career, I was given the chance to perform at some of the biggest ones out there. Luckily, I got I got a, a recommendation uh, booking for Christchurch Buskerfest. I mean, which is in New Zealand. And that was, at the time, that was one of the biggest, greatest busker festivals in the world. And I was grateful to be there. Since I was only three hours away on the plane, it was cheap to bring me in. And, you know, they had a whole a whole swathe of international acts, like really high-level acts there. So I got to meet and watch, like, some really great acts when I was really young. And just being at the that gig the first year... At the end of the festival, I brought the, the director, like a bunch of flowers and a card and some chocolates and whatever, just to, just to say, look, I'm really thankful that you included me with all these great acts. <laughs> and I made a really good first impression on her. And, and she started booking me like uh, every every year, every other year. And in Canada, I got lucky because uh, the first busker festival that I sent my promo video to it was a small festival. But they booked me. It was in June of 1998, I think. And the director of the festival, you know, once he'd seen me perform and saw what I could do, he called a director, the director of the Edmonton Festival and said, hey, look, this guy's in Canada. I think you should meet him. And, um, you know, I got in touch with the, the director of the Edmonton Street Performance Festival and he said, look, we're... We've already booked out our, our roster of, of performers this year, but if you come to the festival, I'll make sure that you get to do shows as well. And I was like, absolutely. So that year I went to the festival and I got to, I got to work. Like, so my first, in my first year or two of performing, I got invited to like a couple of really big street performers festivals, and I think that really helped get my name out there. Well, those are two of the biggest, Christchurch and Edmonton. Now, at Christchurch, they have a unique thing where they do a, a group show. Were they doing the group they, shows in the evenings at that time? They were. That They used to. Yeah, that, that yeah. doesn't happen anymore. But that was the jewel of the event. It was like the, it was the greatest audience mm -hmm. that you could ever ask for. You do street shows all day. And then at night, the whole town comes into this little town square and fills it to capacity. It's surrounded by walls. So that the reverberations of the sound is just enormous. And the crowds are just magic. You know, you walk on stage, everything you say, everything you do gets an enormous reaction. Everyone's there with cameras, like shooting their promo videos because you can't beat the show. You can't beat the reactions there. So it was really helpful 
to have access to that early in my career. Yeah, me and my partner did it, and we had an experience that was good and bad in that uh, the mm -hmm. first time we did the evening show, we were really a uh, highlight. We really killed because we were like uh, maybe close to the uh, end of the first half or something like that. And the shows yeah. tended to be kind of long. And mm -hmm. we just knocked it out of the park. And they're like, oh, you guys should close the shows from now on. Mm -hmm. And then when they moved us to the end, it wasn't nearly as fun. Because, oh, really? uh, well, it's just it's the pressure of being the last act and the pressure of being the ones that were going to pass the hat at the end. Because they yeah. always would put the act at the end that they thought could make the biggest hat. That guess, guess where I get to perform. You get to go at the end, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. After that first year, every year since, yeah. I'm always the last act. Well, we'll talk about that. When we get to the whole techniques of, of hat passing and things like that, let's go more through your career first before we really zoom in on the art of street performing. Let's talk sure. about some other types of venues you did. So you, you did these busker festivals, including the big ones in Edmonton. And I'm sure you did the uh, world championships in Dublin. Yeah, I have a couple of times. Where do you think you could have the biggest crowd out of all the festivals? That was probably the place where I did have the biggest crowd ever was in Dublin. Now, there's the one pitch that's kind of a grassy area in the park, has a bit of a hill next to yeah. it. Yeah. Is that the spot you're, you're thinking of, the, the, in the yeah. park? Yeah, there are basically two pitches next to each other, and they run, one runs, and then the other one runs, and one runs, and the other one runs. And that one, uh, yeah, with the, with the hill... Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can you can fit over a thousand people there. What do you think the biggest, if you had to take number wise, number of people? What do you think the biggest crowd you had was? Uh, it's really hard for me to estimate, but I have a photo of that show. I'm lucky that, that someone was there taking photos because I have a lot of photos of when I did that show in Dublin, and it was the biggest show I ever did, or the biggest hat I ever did. Um, and then someone was there taking photos, so I could actually go through and look at the photo and count, but it's. It's definitely over a thousand people. And do you tell people what the biggest hat is? I don't want to put you on the spot, but is that common knowledge? What your biggest hat was? I had it. You know, when I, when I was building this course for street performers, all the the marketing books I read said, "Hey, you got to show your results if you want to if you want people to be interested in your product." So I did. I put it on my website to begin with, and one of my friends reached out to me. He's like, "You probably shouldn't put that there," and he he made a point, and I was like, "Yeah, okay, I'll take it off." Um, but yeah, it was it was over 4,500 euros. Now let's talk about this idea of being a pole act. At a certain point, there were acts that they started calling pole acts because mm. they would put their last routine up on a pole, even though it wasn't something that added skill per se, like a freestanding ladder. At what point right. do you see acts starting to put up like platforms to do their last tricks? And is that something that people started calling them pole acts or how'd that come about, that whole idea? Well, I mean, for me, I first saw someone do a sway pole in the movie Funny Bones uh, with mm -hmm. Lee Evans. Good movie, yeah. And then, great movie. And then I saw one live in Sydney. I saw a group called Strange Fruit, and they did sway poles live. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. I want to do that. I went to a fabricator and told him what I wanted, and it was just a ridiculous amount of manufacture and effort and stuff to carry around. It was just a huge amount. Huge amount, like the, you got the giant base, and mm -hmm. so it just wasn't really feasible to carry around something like that as a street performer. I was on the back burner, and then I'd saw I've seen people doing like really tall unicycles, and I had seen I had seen one guy in London who got up on a tall unicycle, and just for fun he had people hold it. He never rode it. <laughs> he right, just, right. He just climbed up it, juggled, and climbed down. <laughs> Right, with people holding it the whole time. Yeah, and I thought that was brilliant. 
I, it was it was funny. It was a comedy, and I was like, "Wow, all I need is a unicycle with no wheel. I'll just climb <laughs> up it." That was the idea, and the sway pole, unicycle, no wheel. It all turned into just um, a pole. And what I did come across later is a guy who did something like that in Perth. His name was the Leopard Man, and he basically had this platform that was um, a, like a round, like 12-inch platform just a round, like a little round thing uh, that was on top of a 10 feet of pole. And it was held up by um, ropes that came from the top. So I was performing there. I saw him and I was like, that's it. I don't need the big bass. All I need is ropes like the leopard man has. I just need ropes. So I went back to my fabricator and I said, I don't need the big bass. All I need is a little bass, a pole, and then ropes on top so I can give them out to the audience. Yeah, it turned out to be a, an amazing thing because it's really, really caught on this idea well yeah because gavin didn't really travel too much he had his act and he did it in perth and whatever but when i started doing it i was traveling all over canada all over the us all over europe and it just kind of caught on people saw it and saw how well i was doing with it and it, it just became hey i can do that it's not a tough trick to learn you got to have a set of nuts to do it it's yeah. really it's you're putting your life in the hands of the people from the audience and you're really high up off the ground. So just getting up there, it's no cup of tea, you know, but it's not difficult. It's not uh, something that you need to learn. It's, it's just a fear. I could never do it. I, I you know, I right. did, did like a rollabola finale type of thing. Even getting it a couple of feet off the ground, the, the difference to me fear wise was yeah. uh, amazing. I, I couldn't do it. I have, uh, you know, respect for the Polacks, but at the same time, you do see some where you're like, well, that's a bit of a gimmick. Yeah, and everything these days, everyone's getting up. Now they're on a table, they're on a pole, they're on a unicycle. It's it's just part of the game. Like if you can get up above the crowd, your crowd's going to get bigger. You're going to make more money, and that's that's what people want these days. I think it was uh, maybe his name was Rob Collins, who doesn't act like on a ladder, but the ladder yeah. is is planted on the ground, like it's a freestanding yeah. ladder, but it's it's stable. So he does his chain escape up there. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, that's. I don't know. There's a lot to carry around, I think. And But if you want to make the most money, I think it's uh, it's almost a given that the more people who can see you and hear you, the more people that will give you money. Yeah. So well, yeah. let's talk a little bit about uh, some other types of things you've done because you've been on some of the talent competitions. What's your feelings about shows like America's Got Talent and Australia's Got Talent? What was your experience on those competition shows like? Well, I had a good experience on Australia's Got Talent because... I wasn't in the audition kind of process. They called me up and they said, hey, uh, we've seen you. We've seen your video. Da, 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 da. Can you yeah. come on and uh, be a part of the show? And I was like, yeah, sure. It's just a, a free flight to Melbourne. It's on a, on a show. And, yeah, sounds good. So I did it. And the, the audition, uh, sorry, not the audition, the first show aired and it went great. And uh, I made it through to the next round. And each round that you're on there, there's less people. Uh, and you get treated a little bit better, you know. Yeah. So the next round was the semi-final, uh, which I won. After that, then you're in the grand final. And there was only like eight people or something in the grand final. So uh, they treated us really nice, giving us flights and, and cars. and uh, Sorry, a car from the airport, hotel, and really nice backstage and whatever, interviews and, and whatever. And um, when I looked at the eight acts who were in the grand final, I picked the winner on day one. I said, that girl who sings is going to win right. um, because I had seen America's Got Talent season one and the girl who sang won, right? And I looked at the cast of the grand final and they had basically 
they had basically replicated the cast of the grand final of America's Got Talent. It was like, you've got a girl singer, you've got a guy who does this, a, you know, an old person who does this, you know, this, it just all, everyone kind of lined up with, with the same acts that were on the America's Got Talent. And I was like, well, the girl won America's Got Talent, so I guess this girl is going to win Australia's Got Talent. And you could kind of see it in the production. Like they, they did a lot more behind the scenes work with her, did a lot more interviewing and stuff and a lot more production on the grand final right. um, act. Yeah, probably pretty easy to see where, where everything was going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, obviously, I looked around and I said, okay, I'm not going to win, but I am going to be on TV a few times. So that'll, that'll help. And did it help your booking? Do you feel like it? Uh, more people knew about you then? After the show, I think it, it did initially, but that wears off pretty quick. You know, people forget about. I don't, you know, I don't remember who won America's Got Talent last year, the year before. Like, uh, I don't know, even <laughs> the winners. I know there was an Australian ventriloquist, right? Paul Paul Zierden, recently. Right. I think right. he was Australian. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering why no jugglers sing. We we haven't seen any singing jugglers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. How's your singing voice, Al? Is it pretty good or? I, you know what? I was actually a singer in a band for a while, but uh, but since I've not been singing for a few years, like I don't feel like I'm any good at it anymore. And how was your experience on America's Got Talent? Was it a bit different then? It was, yeah. They asked me the same thing. Can I come down to New York and, and do the first round? And I said, sure. And when I went there, it was just packed with people. Like There were so many performers and that's fine, but I waited 16 hours to get on stage and finally got on stage and did my 90 seconds and and the judge was like yeah that's cool you know uh, we like it blah 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 and then you know i went into a group of people that they that got yeses right they said okay we know you got yeses but it doesn't really mean yes <laughs> right 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 yeah it means maybe yeah i said okay whatever that means and then eventually they came back to me and they said it is a yes they do want you to come back for the, the next round here's the contract and I looked at the contract and I was, I was like, hmm, this, this seems a little off to me. I might have to have an, an entertainment lawyer have a look at it. So that's what I did. I hired an entertainment lawyer. She went through it and just sent me like a, a synopsis of all the bad things about the contract. And basically it ended up that I didn't want to do it because of the contract. Yeah. So I pulled out. And I, they wouldn't have changed it either. I mean, they're not, they're not looking to make exceptions. I think that they might have changed it in recent years because yeah. I do see a lot more variety performers and professional performers on that show. Whereas in the beginning, it was really a lot of raw talent. Whereas now you do see a lot of professional performers because what they wanted was like a 20% of your gross income for five years. And I was like, well, I've been ha having my own gross income untouched for many years now i don't need someone else <laughs> you know taking a percentage of my gross annual income yeah i don't think that ever happening i mean if you look at someone like the passing zone or victor key you know some of the mm -hmm. top juggling acts they went on i don't think any of them were ended up paying income on gigs that they weren't getting from right. america's got talent yeah i mean for that reason i i did pull out and i haven't gone and done it again i have been inspired to do it again uh because I can see what the show is now, mm -hmm. and I realize that it's not really a talent show. It's a TV reality show, and you, you basically got to play to it if you want to get anywhere with it. And I've seen good friends of mine do great on there, and I do see it as an avenue for you know elevating your career, but I also see the downside of it as well. Yeah, for jugglers, I always say it's less about the back crosses and more about the back story. Mm -hmm. 
Like they want to know what your what makes you unique and why should we care about you besides that you have a talent that you can show us. Exactly. Yeah, it does turn me off about that show or any reality show really is the sob stories. Yeah, it's it's sad that that's become a part of it. I mean, when we were coming up like Raspini Brothers, the idea was you got on a TV show just to do your act. Yeah. There was no competition, there was no dying parent or or yeah. you know, cancer surviving or whatever. Things, things changed. Yeah, I watched one one sob story where he was like, yeah, uh, my parents got divorced when I was 13. And I was like, that's like every person. <laughs> that's not like, sobby enough. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about some of your gigs because uh, we only have so much time here. And you had a sure. couple private private events that I, I was jealous about because I got to admit, I'm a bit of a celebrity <laughs> starstruck kind of character. Yeah. And yeah. you've got to do some private parties for some pretty big celebrities. How yeah. do you get to do a private party for Sting? What about okay. that about? Well, it all started with Springsteen, actually. Uh, Springsteen led to Sting. Okay. I was doing a show at Circular Quay in Sydney, and um, little did I know that Bruce Springsteen, his wife, his family, his entourage were all in the audience watching. So I did a show. It was a great show. You know, had a big crowd, did a great show, whatever. But at the end, I went on collecting my hat. Up walks Bruce Springsteen and throws in, you know, I don't know, a fistful of cash, introduces himself, and he says, I chose some of his bodyguards to be in my show, and that uh, he really loved the act. He said, you do what I do, and I didn't really know what he meant, but what he meant is I, I work the crowd like he works the crowd, and I'd never seen him perform, but I mean, later in life, when I had seen, when I did see him perform, I saw what he was talking about, whereas I really make the crowd work for me. But what happened was he gave me his contact information uh, of his you know, personal assistant. And he said, do you, do you come to the U.S.? Like any time that you're in, you know, in any, and we're in the same city, just call this number and you can come to a show. That's cool. I started doing that in, uh, I think it was, that was like 2002 or three or something when we met. And I was in Boston later that year. And he was he was playing Fenway Park. It was the first concert to ever happen at Fenway Park, the baseball park. And um, and my friend was a huge Springsteen fan, a street performer named Peter Panic. I'm sure you know who he is. Yeah, I know Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Nice and guy. he said he said, "Hey Al, I heard that you know Bruce Springsteen. He's <laughs> right? he's coming to play Fenway Park. Can you get us in?" And I was like, "Oh, let me see." I went over to the payphone and I called the number. And I came back and I said, yeah, I got, I got a six tickets. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> so we got to go backstage and meet nice. Bruce and meet the family. And it was backstage where I met this um, philanthropist named uh, Bobby Sager. And Bobby is a, an international philanthropist. He sets up charities in, in different countries that need help. He's a local Boston guy, billionaire. And he asked if I wanted to come and perform at the party that they were having for Bruce and, and the family and everyone. And I went, okay, uh, sure. that's, I'll do that. <laughs> and they even paid me. I was like, nice. oh, this is, this is pretty cool. So I got to do, I went up there and did a show uh, for everyone. And then Bobby Sager, he liked me so much that he started getting me to come to all of his parties to perform. And like, I think a year later, Sting was at the party. Um, and then another year it was Sting and his whole family. Another year it was Sting and the other members of the police so I've actually done shows for Sting a bunch of times and, and other kind of famous people because um, Bobby helps with uh, the, the Young Presidents organization, uh, which is just people who are under 30 who are, me are members of the Fortune 500 who are CEOs. So I go to perform at those parties at his house as well and meet all kinds of 
Nice. Famous people. But that's how that all started. It started with Bruce and then from meeting Bobby Sager, I get to uh, do a show with a Bruce and, and Bobby at, at his house and then, yeah, met Sting and everything after that. Well, you've done quite a quite a service for yourself to go up from the street performing ranks to these TV shows and uh, <laughs> these big private parties. So let's talk right. a little bit about what you offer to others as far as this class that teaches, it's called the Ultimate Street Performer Class Online. Ultimate Street Performer, yeah, online program. And what's the what's the website we could go there to, to find it? It's ultimatestreetperformer.com. Nice and simple. Nice and simple. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do the last, last part of our podcast here about street performing and some tips and stuff that our listeners can come away with for how they can be uh, seven-figure street performers like Alakazam. Right. All right, so let's talk about some of the, the ways you've broken it down. Uh, you've talked about these different factors of the street performing show, and let's go over a little overview first. Preparation, okay. creation, performance, promotion, control, and maximizing. Let's talk a little bit about the preparation. What kind of preparation do you need to be a successful street performer? It's the understructure. It's, it's how to prepare your show and optimize it off stage so that it runs at a maximum earning capacity on stage. So basically, like it's practicing your skills. It's practicing your stage presence, getting charisma, using positivity positive thinking, getting your costume and your props looking good, what tech equipment to use, how to take care of your mind and body off stage so that you can perform at a, a maximum capacity on stage. And how many routines do you think a street performing show should have? Is there like an optimal number? As I always thought I had too many. Two. Two. Like a, like, a, a pre, like a build and then the finale. You have your finale, which is your closing act. And then you have your opening act, which is your second best act. So your finale is your best act. Your opening act is your second best act. So you think just two would be like ultimate? That is what I teach. <laughs> There's 10 steps. I think I had 13 or so. Oh, routines. boy. <laughs> there are 10 steps, but there are only two routines. And within those routines, you can do an amount of tricks. Right. But there are only two routines. It's like I always remember like I'd show up some places and someone would have a suitcase. In their suitcase, they have like five balls, a Diablo, three machetes and a giraffe yeah. unicycle. Like that was all they had. Right, right. And, and I'd show up with like two prop cases of all this junk. And also just logistically, you shouldn't have too many props on the pitch because no. things get destroyed, things get stolen. Really, when it comes down to it, if you wanted to bring the least amount of stuff possible, if you brought a tall unicycle and three machetes, that would be enough to do a big street show. You know, you do an opening act with the three machetes, pull out a volunteer, you get them to hold the unicycle. And you climb up the unicycle and you do an act with three machetes on the unicycle. Boom, that's the, the smallest amount of props that you need. Yeah, I think it was uh, David Holder. Is that, am I getting the right night? I think he did a, a straight jacket escape on a giraffe. Yeah, he did. And it was just like one trick. It was like one 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's perfect. I mean, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to break free from the straight jacket on that unicycle. First, I need to pick a volunteer to get me inside the straight jacket. And then that takes 10 minutes yeah. to do. And then you gotta, you're strapped in a straight jacket. You've got to get on a unicycle. How the hell are you going to do that? You've got to pick another person to help you. You've got to pick another. Lift you up. Lift up the thing. Lift it. And then finally you're up there. And then you deliver a hat pitch. And you do your trick. And then you collect the money. Like that's – a street show is a one-trick show. Yeah, I agree because I always had too many tricks. And I always felt like it just wasn't a story. It was these different chapters strung together which right. is okay in a corporate or somewhere else where they're kind of stuck. When you're in a theater or a venue, your audience is, is trapped in. You know, they, they can leave if they want to, 
but they're really not going to leave. They're trapped in a performance bubble. And you just have to do that. You have to replicate that on the street with a, an invisible performance bubble that makes them not be able to leave. And what that is, is the, the promise of something that they want to see. Well, let's talk about this word control that you have as part of your sort of basis of street performing. What do you yeah. mean by control? Is that controlling the audience, making them work for you? It's basically manipulating the audience into acting the way that you want them to. I have a whole module on that in my course. And it all comes down to rhythm, to the, your cadence, the way you say things, to script doctoring, to how many jokes you say and, and the rhythm you say them in. And um, it's making people say yes throughout your show constantly. Just say yes, yes, yes. You want to see it? Yeah. Don't you think this is great? Yeah. Just constantly saying yes. Because the more you can get people to say yes in your show, the more likely they are to say yes when you ask them for money. Are you a person who, who mentions the money throughout the course of the show? And do you actually make a specific amount, like pull out a 10 or a 20? What do you, what do you think about uh, the idea of mentioning the money throughout the show? I, I think... Throughout the show, you don't need to mention it at all until the very end, right before you deliver your big promise, you pause and you do deliver a speech. And what I've learned is people don't buy what you've done. Uh, they buy why you do it. So mm. you have to sell them on why. Like I'm out here because I was, wasn't loved as a child and I need love from an audience. Right. Just something like that. Like you have to find out the reason why and make your audience understand why you're a performer. And then whatever amount that you suggest to them, they'll be like, wow, that was such a great show. Yeah, I'll give you that much money. What do you suggest? What's the amount you suggest? I suggest a bill with a zero on it. <laughs> okay. All right. So that would be a, a, what, a 10 or a 20? Is that? Yeah, the... yeah. I mean, I always used to just say a fiver. Yeah. You know, and that, that worked for me for years. I'd say, uh, and if you don't have five, and if you don't think so, just write your complaints on a five and put it in the hat. Mm-hmm. You know, that worked for years, but now I just say a, a bill with a zero. I think it's a, a good, solid tip for a, a job well done. Hmm, I think so, too. It's, it's difficult because I always felt like if you did a good show, that like you say, that they're paying for the show. Like, oh, you saw the show. Just pay what you think it's worth. And then most people are like, oh, that's worth a dollar or two. Exactly. No. Like they don't put they don't much, much value if they get to choose. No. Now, if you tell them to pay what they think it's worth, then yeah. they, you get a little amount. If you tell them to pay you what you think it's worth, then you, you get what you're worth. <laughs> so let's talk about maximizing the hat. Now, that's yeah. one way is to tell them what you think you should get. What are some other yeah. tips for maximizing the hat at the end of the show? Um, upsells, basically um, offering a free gift to someone who puts in a 20. Like a postcard or a lanyard or... Exactly, a signed poster, a t-shirt, a hat. Just anything like it's not doesn't seem like you're selling um, something, but it's like, look, if you really enjoyed the show and if you put a 20 in my hat, I'm going to say thank you by giving you one of my Alakazam T-shirts because I want you to go home with something to remember me by because you put in such a nice tip. And that really helps a lot. Yeah. The best I saw, I think, was maybe the checkerboard guy. Yeah. Like he had he had those lanyards, which couldn't have cost him very much. He was able to put them around his neck and just hand them out because I think also we have to talk about the quickness which you, you deal with each person. You can't spend too much time with no. each person because yeah. um, you know you have a big crowd there and if it takes too long, Absolutely. people But at the same yeah. time, each person has to be thanked, right? And, and recognized as being someone who gave. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, when I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a solo act, so it is harder for me. What I used to do is say, wait over here for T-shirts. But what I do now is I hold my hat in one hand 
and I have like trucker hats in my other hand and I just watch what goes into my hat. And anytime someone puts in a 20, I give a hat to that person. I say 20 gets a hat and 20 gets a hat, 20 gets a hat. And then the people that are coming up behind me like, oh, 20 gets a hat. Like maybe we give them a 20. You know? <laughs> right, right. So that really helps. And I think also accepting cashless tips um, is helps maximize what you earn on the street because these days a lot of people don't carry cash. And if you want those people to tip you, you have to have a way for them to pay you without cash. And what's the best system for that now? Is it, is it a it's Venmo? Different. Or? I like Venmo, Venmo especially in the US, but it only works here. PayPal, there are a couple of websites where you uh, like busk.co and busktip.com where you can sign up and have your own web page that basically is just a contribution page. So if you have a QR code, people can um, take a photo of with their cameras. It just opens up a little website and it says, hey, tip Alakazam $10. And then you, you press tip and it just uses your Apple Pay or, or Google Pay or whatever. Like that's a really easy way to do it. But Venmo works really well in the US. What percentage of your tips nowadays are, are cashless? Zero, because I'm not street performing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in, before the before the pandemic, before uh, when you get back to it, let's put it that way. I'd say probably between ten and twenty percent uh, was cashless tips. So, what that really means is, when you're doing a show for just cash, you can earn ten or twenty percent more if you accept cashless tips. And how long do you, before we go cashless entirely? You think? I don't know. I mean, some countries are already there, like China, and but there are. We, America, North America, and, and certainly Australia and a lot of places in Europe, they just have an attachment to actual money, to coins and bills. And they want to have that and they feel secure with it. It makes them feel secure. So I think we're still a long way off, but eventually, uh, you know, it's coming. All right, let's do some quick ones now. We have a, we're over our time, but you're so interesting. Let's do some more, if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. Now, a lot of people would say that Alakazam is definitely one of the top five Street performers in the world. Who are the other four? I mean, for me, I would say Lucky Diamond Rich. Okay. I would say The Flying Dutchman. Yeah. The Butterfly Man. Okay. The Gym Show. Gym Show? Yeah, the Gym Yeah. 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 Jim's a good guy. Uh, the, I yeah. mean, this is just my picks. You know? Sure, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, and Master Lee, probably. Good picks. Very good picks. Yeah. All different, too. All very different. Yeah. What about uh, Space Cowboy? Oh, yeah. I mean... If I had a top 10, <laughs> like yeah. he's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard for me in my top five. Of course, I'm going to choose my mentors. Whereas Shane and I kind of came up at the same time where we're more like colleagues and, and brothers than uh, mentors and, and protégés. He's up there, definitely. What part does charisma play at being a successful street performer? Is that the number one attribute? Or what do you think the number one attribute that you would need to be a successful street performer? It's not the number one attribute. It's very helpful. But no, the number one attribute for a street performer is persistence, so okay. perseverance, being able to keep going if it's hard or if it's not hard, like just keep, keep trying until you get it. Because if you keep trying, you do get it eventually. What's the best amp to use on the street? Have you found a particular piece of equipment that you yeah. feel is, has the most power for the buck? Uh, well, right now, the Bose S1 Pro is the industry standard. Everyone seems to have one. They, they're about $600 US, and it's made by Bose, so the quality is amazing. Yeah, it's just a really high-quality product. Second to that, I would say, would be, well, for me, I like the Stuffin' thing. It's a, a locally-made product out of the UK, and it's two really small speakers that really pack a massive punch. It's the smallest, loudest amp that you can buy. It's smaller than a Bose S1. 
and it's probably just as loud or louder. More expensive though, twice the price. Do you work any pitches that don't allow amplification? I have done, um, not recently. I rarely travel to street perform. Well, I used to, but now I travel really only when I have a gig. It might, it might be a street performing gig, it right. might be a convention gig, it might be a college, whatever, but I, I don't really travel to street perform for the reason that I live in Boston and Boston has a great pitch. So why would I go to some other pitch when I could be working in Boston? And what's the deal with the Boston pitch? Do you have to audition? Is it limited yeah. to a certain number of performers? What are some of the rules there? Yeah, it is an audition. Uh, they, they hold auditions once a year and they have a roster and it's a yearly roster. And, you know, once you've been in, in the program for five years or more, you get grandfathered in. Yeah, and, and they accept new auditions. Basically, just have to have your public liability insurance. You have to sign their terms and conditions. You have to sign their hold harmless agreement. You have to pass your audition and then you can get on the schedule. And is it uh, overcrowded now or do you feel that when the pandemic ends, it would be a good place for people to do shows or do you feel it's already kind um, of maxed out? The, I, it's not maxed out. I mean, it's been at the point where it's been able to hold about 12 performers. But if we were all here working 100% of the time, that would be too many. The thing is that we all have gigs. We all go away and do things from time to time. Right. So it, it, it is able to hold that many because we're not always here. The problem we're having now is that the, you know, the pandemic has affected all the businesses that are running out of there. So a lot of them have closed. A lot of them haven't paid their rent. In turn, the, the management company who runs the place has also not paid their rent to whoever you know, owns Fanny yeah. Hall. So the, the future is in jeopardy, really. And the, the people who were running the Street Performer program have all lost their jobs. Next year, if street performing is a thing in Boston, it'll be, uh, it'll be new and it'll be different. There'll be different people involved. And whenever that happens, there are always problems. You know, that new people have new ideas. And, hey, we, gotta, we, we can't let the street performers do this. Or, yeah. This great thing that's already been working here for hundreds of years or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, they want to bring in their own ideas and their own performers yeah. and their own prejudices. And of course, it's going to be a tough. And I think we're we could be primed for a very big comeback for entertaining and performing. And well, yeah, I think so because so. Out, outside is seen as safe. Yeah, going into a theater might not be preferable, whereas going to outside to see a show, especially just a street show, something that just happens when you're out and about. You know, that's something you can just watch. You don't have to plan. You don't have to buy tickets. I definitely think there's going to be a boom for street theater and street theater festivals after the pandemic. Let's talk about a couple last things. I'm keeping you longer, but uh, there's a couple okay. of things I want to ask. Good, good. What's your what's your feeling about hecklers? Should you ignore them? Should you try to bring them part of the show? Or is it a case-by-case -case kind of situation with hecklers? I think it is a case-by-case -case basis. I generally tend to ignore them first, see if they run out of steam. I let them annoy the people who are around them for a while, and then I move in for the kill. I think it's all about timing to make sure that everyone's annoyed by them before you take their legs out. And when you do take their legs out, you're giving them the attention that they crave, right? So they might fire back, they might not. Another thing I like to do, which is really, really effective, is to say, what was that? And make them say <laughs> it again. Right, right, right. <laughs> and when they say it again, I just let it fall on dead air for about four seconds. And then I say, oh, right. I thought you said something funny. Ah. <laughs> right. Just, just to let yeah. them know that, wow, comedy is not that easy. Yeah. And the other thing I like to do is if they keep yelling out, 
I go, uh, I'm gonna, I separate them from their group of, of peers. I go, oh, oh, wait, oh, I've actually got a spot for you. Um, this is this this brick right here is a spot I reserve for people who want to yell out things during my show. So I'm gonna have to get you to come and stand here. So what I do is I separate them from their support group, like their friend or their friends or yeah. whatever. They no longer got that little, you know, that group of friends that were there laughing at, who are laughing at them. And then I take them, I put them over, so I put them in a little spot, and I say, all right, that's the spot. You can stand if you want to yell stuff out. And I say, go ahead. What do, you, what do you want to say? And they'll say the same thing they already said. And I said, yeah, you already said that. Comedy's hard, isn't it? So say something else. And they, they just can't think of anything most of the time. And they just go, you suck. And it's like, okay, now that's, <laughs> that's really not a very good one, mate. If you want to and, – and then you hit them with a couple more really good heckle lines. And you right. say, look, at this point, you can either stay on that spot or you can go back to the audience and – I can continue performing. And I ask the audience first, I say, do you guys want him to stay on the spot or do you want him to go back to the audience and we continue the show and everyone claps, right? And then they leave. Like I said, it's key though that they other people hear them. Sometimes people heckle and they heckle kind of just you personally. Yeah. And, and if you react, people are like, why is he... Exactly. Why is he berating that person? You can't just like start being mean to someone no. if, if the audience doesn't hear it. So you got to let it go for a while. You got to just talk over it. And let them keep doing it. Yeah, they have to watch you to be mean to that person. Then they're, then you have carte blanche to yeah. pretty much say whatever you want at that point. Yeah. You know? yeah. All right, well, we're coming to the end. So let's talk about one last thing. Obviously, we're going through a pretty diff difficult time with the virus. Hopefully, next year when the vaccine comes out, things will turn around. Mm -hmm. You talk a lot about, in, the, in your class, about, of course, going from zero to seven figures to making street performing a viable career path as far as earning mm -hmm. money. What are your tips or your number one tip for financial freedom? Because right now it's very important that people have saved their money and can get through this period of time. Right. What do you think about saving and planning for the future? I think a lot of, a lot of times street performers tend to hold their money in cash and cash loses its buying power by 3% every year due to inflation. So if you're not investing your money, you're losing money. So it's uh, for me, it's all about investing. And I invest in... Um, I've been investing in property for about 20 years now. And it's just a way to use your hat money. You know, you work hard for your hat money. So your your money should work hard for you. You put it into property so that your your money can actually grow. You can you can make rental income, you can make capital gains, and you can use the equity in the house, the first house that you buy, you can use the equity to build to buy another house. And then you can have a rental from that income property and and so on and so on. And it just it just, just grows exponentially. The more of your hat money that you invest in property or the stock market, the more security, the more financial security you're going to have when you no longer are able to perform. Nice. And where do you see the future? You're, you said you're in your early 40s. How, yeah. how long do you tend to want to stay on the street? And what's your exit strategy if you have one? I mean, my retirement plan is based on owning property because, you know, obviously I have a monthly income from that, from, from all the rentals that I own. So that's that's my retirement plan for when I don't want to perform anymore. But at this point, I love performing. I love being in front of an audience. It's, it's where I feel at home. As soon as I get on the pitch and I start talking to people, uh, start talking to people I'm, just, I'm just happy, you know, I'm really happy to be there. When that happiness goes away, it might be time for me to give it up. But, you know, street performing can be tough on some days. So, I mean, eventually I'm going to just move into, you know, just doing festivals or just doing gigs. And because at this point, I probably 
my pre-pandemic, obviously, I was doing probably only 20% street performing and the rest was street theater festivals and gigs. To go to like, you know, 100% off the street and then, I don't know, as long as I like performing, I'm going to keep performing. (laughs) That's basically it. Sounds good. And thank you so much for taking some time and being on the Drop Everything podcast, one of the best street performers out there. And I can't wait for you to get back out and bring your gifts to the people and uh, share your skills. Do those big giant shows that you're that you're famous for? No worries. I did um I did make a coupon code for, for drop everything listeners if they're Good. interested in Ultimate Street Performer. Okay. Give us the information. What's what's the what's the details? If you go to ultimatestreetperformer.com, you can watch my free training video. It's twelve steps to a high income street performance. And there is a code offered in that video for a two hundred dollar discount. But um, I can give the Drop Everything listeners a $300 discount. If they're, if they're on the checkout page, they can use the code DROP300 and they get a $300 discount on the course price. And the course includes uh, 75 uh, videos, 10 hours of content, uh, show review, vi- uh, video review, six coaching calls and private members group on Facebook. Well, let me add my endorsement because I've been watching your, one reason I decided to reach out to you is because I was watching your tips on Facebook. You've been offering free street performing tips on Facebook. That's right. This guy is very smart because I'm agreeing with everything he's saying. So, (laughs) (laughs) no, I really think that what you talk about is really, you really analyze street performing down to sort of a psychological basis of it. And I think you're really onto something. I think everything you talk about as far as maximizing how much money you can make, maximizing the size of the show has been right on. So I definitely endorse uh, the listeners there to check Absolutely. it out, especially if they're interested in street performing. Well, I put up a lot of free content on uh, my Facebook group. It's called Tips for Street Performers. And I basically put up a video there each week. And, you know, a lot of other people put up videos as well and ask different questions. And I'm always, I always try and be helpful if I have the answers. But yeah, there's tons of free content on Tips for Street Performers. And that's a, that's a group anyone can join. But uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I have a, a private members group for um, Ultimate Street Performer members as well, which is pretty cool. I can't think of a better source. And thank you once again, Mr. Al Miller, Mr. Alakazam, for being on the Drop right Everything on. podcast. Thanks, Al. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 90, my conversation with Al Miller, also known as Alakazam, the human knot. Thanks for all those great tips about street performing and can't wait till you're out there again on the pitch making those big hats, Al. All right, let's thank our sponsor one more time, the IJA. We all know that stands for International Jugglers Association. Find out about the IJA at juggle.org. Find out about their yearly conventions, festivals, and all the great products at juggle.org. Also, don't forget, you can still buy my book in time for Christmas, a novel about a young street performer, Alex the Great, available at amazon.com. All right, thanks for listening. Now go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.